as we find it in the 18th Psalm. Psalm 18, we began this psalm last week. We made it through to verse 28, amazingly, at least from my perspective. And we're going to finish the psalm this morning. That may seem daunting to you as well, but I think we can do it. And so we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 50, quite in depth. But to get us started, and for the sake of time, what I want to do is I want to read verses 46 through 50, the tail end of the 18th Psalm. And as I do that, brothers and sisters, I remind you that what you are about to hear is the word of Almighty God Himself. And so may we listen to it, receive it, and believe it as such. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways and your thoughts than our thoughts. And so we humbly acknowledge together that we are incapable of, of understanding your word as we ought, unless your spirit illumines our hearts and our minds this morning. Therefore, we pray that you would use your word that goes out from your mouth so that it would not return to you empty, but that it may accomplish in us that which you purpose and may succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Do this in our midst now, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. Well, last Sunday, as I said earlier, we started looking at Psalm 18, and we saw in the introduction that Psalm 18 is a unique psalm because unlike many of the psalms in the Psalter, we're given the historical context in which David actually wrote this psalm. You see that in the superscript there at the very beginning of the psalm. That's there in the original Hebrew text. And we saw that David is giving thanks to God for the fact that he has given him deliverance from all of his enemies. All of his enemies have been delivered into his hand, uh, in particular Saul, who was particularly bloodthirsty for David's death. But we also saw that this psalm is unique, not just that it's a victory or psalm of thanksgiving, but also that it's recorded elsewhere in the sacred text. We went back to 2 Samuel chapter 22, And saw that with a few slight variations, this psalm in its entirety is also there. Don't know which one was written first. Scholars can't figure that out. But it is unique that it's in two different places. And what's also unique is that following 2 Samuel 22 are the final words of David. And so what we saw is that David is thanking God, praising God for his many deliverances. As in many ways, he faces the final enemy, the last enemy, death itself. 
And we saw that the way that he's cultivating thankfulness and praise to God is he was remembering some essential truths that were cultivating, motivating thankfulness and gratitude towards God in his own heart. And so we looked at those first three truths last week, and I want to look at the last three truths this week. I want us to look at these truths in hopes that they would motivate us to look to God in thankfulness as we remember His gracious covenant dealings with us. And so what are those three truths we need to remember? First of all, we need to remember our strength. The fact that the Lord, Yahweh, God Himself, is our strength to be able to do all that we do. We'll see that in verses 29 through 42. Second of all, we'll see that we need to remember our salvation, the salvation that God has wrought for us over our enemies, particularly in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see that in verses 43 through 48. And then finally, we'll see that we need to remember our Savior in verses 49 and 50. We need to remember how God has saved us, particularly in the person and work of Christ. And as we did last week, because I think this was helpful, we're going to look at each one of these sections of the psalm and ask the question, how do we view this from the perspective first of David, then of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then ourselves? How do we sing this psalm that David first sang, that ultimately Christ sang, and then how are we to sing this? How are we to pray this in our current life circumstances as well to the end that we might be filled with praise and thanksgiving and worship for our God and His gracious dealings with us. So let's look first then at how we are to remember our strength. Look at verses 29 through 42 with me. For by you, this is David speaking to the Lord, I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. He's talking about these military conquests that he was able to accomplish and perform. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies And overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Now, I know that when we come to psalms like this, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? It makes us a little bit uncomfortable because we we think about David singing in praise 
of the fact that he has vanquished his enemies. He's defeated them in battle. He's taken up his sword and his shield and his spear, and he's run his enemies through so that they cannot rise. And it makes us uncomfortable in many ways, rightfully so, because in the new covenant, we're not to take up arms like this, are we, against our enemies? That's not how God conquers our enemies. No, our, our weapons of warfare are the preached word and prayer and giving our lives away for our enemies. But that's not the way it was under the old covenant. David had been appointed by God as Israel's king to be its protector and to walk in covenant faithfulness with God. And part of that covenant faithfulness was going to war against his enemies and cutting them down. And see, this is important for us to understand. Israel was a theocracy. God directly told them what to do, and then when they did it, it is as if the hand of God himself were doing it. And as we know, God is the giver of life. God is the taker of life. He has every right to wipe out his enemies. And so as David is doing this and rejoicing in this, we need to keep these things in mind so that we don't repulse away from these and go, what does this possibly have to do with us? But what is David doing here? He's thanking the Lord. You saw this again and again in these verses I just read you. He's thanking the Lord that he has given him strength to be able to crush his enemies in in battle. And we know that David isn't just thanking God for the strength to be able to take on his human enemies, the nations that are against him and Saul and Absalom and so on and so forth, but he's also given the strength to be able to withstand his spiritual enemies. The flesh, the world, and the devil. We saw that in the preceding verses in Psalm 18. That David says, the Lord has made me righteous. And so I'm not guilty of the charges that my enemies bring against me as they seek my life. And David's saying, the Lord is the one who has strengthened me to be able to do this. To pick up the sword. To pick up the word and be able to vanquish my human enemies and be able to vanquish my spiritual enemies. And David puts beautiful language to this. If you look at verse 35 of Psalm 18, he says, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. Now listen to this last little part of the verse here. And your gentleness made me great. I read multiple commentators and scholars this week that said that that word gentleness there can very easily be translated humility or condescension. And so what David is saying is, Lord, you've condescended and entered into a covenant of grace with your servant David, and you've made him the king over your people. You've strengthened him to engage in spiritual and human warfare like this, and you've given him success. And it's your condescension that has made me great. I'm not great in and of myself or able to do these things on my own. It's because you have humbled yourself in your dealings with David, your king. And how does God strengthen David to do this? We'll look back up at verse 30. David says, this God, Yahweh, my God, his way is perfect. And so what is he saying? He's saying, Lord, you've revealed your character to me. And what have you revealed to me about yourself? You have revealed that you are perfect. Or you may have a footnote there that says blameless. The Lord is perfect. That's his character. And then out of that character... He acts as it were, doesn't he? And so David says what? Your way is perfect. 
all of your dealings with your servant, all of your dealings with your people, in your sovereign power and control over all things, you are blameless in how you carry those things out with goodness and power and wisdom and might. And so, of course, David goes on to say, because God's character is perfect, his ways are perfect. And therefore, the rest of verse 30, the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. God's word is true and perfect because he is true and perfect. And so David's saying, I find strength in the revelation of your character, in your word and in your ways and in you. And in your word, my soul can rest. And not just rest, but then find the strength to do that which you have commanded me to do. And so that's why David, again and again throughout this psalm, refers to God as what? You're my rock. You go through the psalm and count how many times. You're my rock, you're my rock. It echoes back to Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses. After the people are delivered from the hands of the Egyptians across the Red Sea. Why? Because the enemies of God's people have smashed against that rock, Yahweh, and been smashed to smithereens. But God's people have found refuge in that rock. And David is saying the same thing here about his covenant-keeping God. He is my strength because he's condescended, and I find strength in the revelation of himself and in his covenant promises. So we've seen that, how it finds voice in the life of David, this psalm. Now, how does it find voice in the life of Christ? Well, remember in verse 35, how David said that the Lord, in your gentleness, you condescended to make me great. Well, that should make us think, as new covenant saints, of the greatest condescension of the Lord ever in the history of the universe, right? And what is that? There is no greater condescension than the condescension of the second person of the Trinity, eternally blessed along with the Father and the Spirit, when he assumed a human nature. He condescends and he does that. Why, the creed tells us, for us and for our salvation. That's why he condescends and lowers himself and takes on a human nature. And as great as the condescension of the Lord was in calling David, it's even greater in the condescension of David's greater son who takes on flesh that he might be the promised Messiah. But what we also see when we look at the life of Christ, his life and ministry, we see that the Father strengthens Jesus according to his human nature, doesn't he? According to his divine nature, he doesn't need strength from the Father. But according to his human nature, he does. And so we see this right at the outstart of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, when he's baptized. This is a great passage to take people, by the way, if someone says, what biblical proof do you have for the Trinity? Take them to Jesus' baptism. Because what do we have? John the Baptist baptizing Jesus the Son of God, and the Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus as he comes up out of the water. And then what does the Father say? The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And why is the Spirit descending? So that everybody can see it. To strengthen Jesus for all that the Father has called him to do covenantally, that we might be reconciled to him. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. But we don't just see the Father strengthening Jesus with the Spirit. We also see Him strengthening Jesus 
by the means of angels. I, I hope you haven't missed this in your Bible reading. If you look again at Matthew chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but shortly after um, Jesus is, uh, is baptized, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit and tempted by Satan. And after he defeats Satan the last time, Satan leaves him, and then Matthew includes that angels come and minister to him. Angels come and, and strengthen him. And we see that perhaps even more clearly in Gethsemane. You remember Jesus retires to pray to the Father three times while the disciples apparently catch up on their sleep. And the third time, we're told in Luke twenty-two forty-three that there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven. And what was the angel doing? It was strengthening him, probably reminding him of the promises that the Father had given to him because Jesus was taking upon himself the weight of the sins of the world, the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God. And so here is this angel, since the disciples are asleep, reminding him of what the Father is going to do through him. And who sends those angels to strengthen him? The Father does. Why? So that he might do all that is necessary for our salvation to win for us the spiritual battles that we could not win for ourselves. And whereas David failed in those duties as the Lord strengthened him, Jesus never did but performed them and carried them out flawlessly. Okay, so we've heard the psalm, the mouth of David, in the mouth of Christ. What about in our lives? What about in our walk with the Lord? Brothers and sisters, we need to be humbled by this reality and strengthened and encouraged that the Lord is our strength for this battle. The only reason that we are believers and united to Christ to begin with is because the Holy Spirit has regenerated us. And the only reason that we continue is because He continues to strengthen us and empower us to do all that God has called us to. And so when you see yourself obeying the Lord in loving your enemies and forgiving and humbling yourself in repentance and giving yourself away sacrificially for others, and you're worshiping the Lord, and you're praying, and you're in the Word, and you're making the gospel known, and you're fellowshipping with other saints, don't take for granted that the reason you have the will to do that, the desire to do that, and the strength to do that is because the Lord Himself is working in you by His Spirit to strengthen you to that end. That's why we engage in this spiritual battle. Paul sums it up great. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, as he writes to the Ephesian church, he said, churches, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Don't be strong in yourself. There's no strength there. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That's who we look to. When in all of life, whether we're feeling strong or not, we're to look for the Lord, to the Lord, and we're to do what then? Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood like David did, against his human enemies, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle. And the Lord has given us all that we need to fight it in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace. 
And I want you to notice, just very briefly in passing, notice there's, this is not an emphasis anywhere in the New Testament. No one's sitting around, Paul's not encouraging anybody to sit around as a victim and lick their wounds. There's no self-pitying. And trust me, if anybody in the history of, the, of Christendom was persecuted, it was the people that Paul often wrote to. Paul himself experienced that persecution. But there's no call to sit around and lick your wounds. It's a battle cry. Yes, we're victimized. Yes, we should grieve that. And it's difficult, but we're to get back into the battle. We may bear scars the rest of our lives in the battle. But we're not to sit on the sidelines and not continue to engage in the fight. Our role may look different in that. But we're not called to sit around and and say, oh, woe is me. No, we're to get back in the fight. Because the Lord is our strength. And so, Christian, if you're feeling worn out and tired this morning, go to the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you the strength to carry this yoke that I've called you to. Because of the flesh, it doesn't often feel like freedom. But it is actually freedom. And I will strengthen you to be able to carry it and to bear it and engage in this battle. So we've seen how we need to remember our strength to cultivate thankfulness. Second of all, let's look at how we need to remember our salvation. Look at verses 43 through 48 with me. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence." Now, as we saw earlier in Psalm 18, if you recall from last week, we saw that in this psalm, David is picking up a lot of language from the time of the Exodus under Moses and the military conquest of God's people as they head into the promised land and defeat the unbelieving nations that occupy it. And so if you look at places like Exodus chapter 15 or uh, Joshua chapter 2, you see that he uses similar language as they do there for how the enemies of the Lord just cringe and shrink away in fear upon hearing about how the Lord has been with his people and crushed their enemies. And so what David is saying is, the same covenant God who delivered his people under Moses and under Joshua is the God who has graciously entered into the same covenant with me. And so I am leading God's people victoriously, delivering them from their enemies. The Lord is saving them by my hand. And so David is saying that that's what's happening here. And David knew that the Lord would give him victory as Israel's king. He knew that from other places in the Psalter that the Lord had inspired him to write. Don't turn there, but I'm going to read for you two sections from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. In Psalm 2, verse 9, the Lord says to his anointed, and David was the Lord's anointed king, you shall break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in, people, in, in, in pieces like a potter's vessel. You ever held a cheap clay pot 
You know, you could almost just crush it with your hands. David's saying, the Lord has given the nations to me and given me a rod of iron, and it's like I've smashed them into a million pieces. Same idea in Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And so David knew that the Lord was going to do this. And so when we see David fulfilling his role as covenant king over Israel, when we look at his life and ministry, we see this actually happening. A great example is in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Again, you don't have to turn there. I'm just making lots of citations to to make it through this passage here. There's too much for us to look at otherwise. But 2 Samuel 8 tells us that David defeats the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians, the Edomites, and on and on. And as David leads his armies, they strike down together tens of thousands of enemy troops. And so these enemies of God and his people, they surrender to David. And rather than fighting against him, they bring him tribute and they serve him. So that we're told twice, it's in Second Samuel chapter 8 in verses 6 and 14, that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. All of this victory and conquest was God's salvation for David and for Israel. That's how he sees it. This is the Lord saving his people from the hands of their enemies, which is exactly why David is singing this psalm. So we've seen the psalm in the mouth of David. How about in the life and ministry of Christ? Well, when we turn to the New Testament, And again, there's too many passages here for me to take you to. But when we turn to the New Testament, we realize that the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, inspires the New Testament authors to understand that those two psalms in particular, Psalm 110 was the most cited psalm in the entire New Testament. They're understanding that those psalms were talking about Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, these were true about David as a type and a shadow, but they find their ultimate reality in Jesus Christ and in the fact that he has crushed his enemies. And so there's just, I have all these citations here, but there's just too many to take you to. Acts 4, 25 through 30, if you want to write it down. Acts 13, 33. Hebrews 1, 5, which we've already looked at in our study through the book of Hebrews. It'll come up again in Hebrews 5, 5 as well as Revelation 2, 12, 19, and and that's just Psalm 2. There's too many for for me to take you to in Psalm 110. But but trust me, just go do your cross-references in your Bible, and you'll see that all of these citations in the New Testament are showing you that these psalms are talking about Jesus. But here's the point. David's victories point forward to the victories that Jesus brought about during his life and his death and his burial, and his resurrection and ascension. Now, here's the thing. I know that David's victories actually looked like victories from a human perspective, didn't they? Right? Because he's, he's literally running his enemies through. And then they're cringing before him, coming before him and saying, all right, you beat us, we'll give you tribute. It's easy to see from a human perspective how David had victory. But when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, we may be tempted to go, how was that victory? His enemies end up killing him on a cross. The most shameful way that you can be, and God's wrath is poured out on him. How is that victory? 
Well, of course, brothers and sisters, we need to remember, no one took Jesus' life from him. His enemies didn't triumph over him. He willingly laid down his life because that's what the Father required to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. So Jesus is willingly doing this. And that willingness is actually a triumph, which is why when you go to places like John 3.14 or John 8.28 or John 12.32 and 34, how does Jesus describe his own crucifixion? He says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be exalted in his crucifixion. Because despite how it looks, right? Isaiah 53, we esteemed him stricken and smitten, afflicted by God. But what's the reality? He was bruised and crushed for our iniquities, not for his own. He wasn't an object of the Father's wrath because he himself somehow incurred a curse, but he was becoming and taking that curse for us. And if you want clear proof of that, even clearer proof, you don't have to turn there, but listen to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, he's speaking to the believers here, Paul is, the Colossian believers, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this last verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In the cross, that was a triumph over God's enemy. Because he saved his people from experiencing his wrath ultimately and being slaves to the flesh, the world, and the devil anymore. I love how John Gill, who I've been indebted to as I've been studying Psalm 18, he's an 18th century English Baptist pastor. He says that Satan was defeated by Christ not only in the wilderness, remember when he was tempted, when he was vanquished by him because he didn't give in to that temptation, Um, But in the garden and on the cross, when Satan could find nothing in Jesus and get no other advantage over Jesus but to bruise his heel, when he himself, Satan himself, had his head broke, his works ruined, and he himself destroyed. Yes, the heel of Christ was bruised, but he crushed the head of Satan on the cross. And so it is victory over his enemies. And perhaps we see that most clearly in his then resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. But this psalm doesn't just point us to that first victory that Jesus brought about, that in his first coming, but it also points us to that final victory that Jesus is going to bring about when he returns. Because you see, he's not coming to save, and he's not going to come meek and mild, as it were, the second time, as he did the first time. He's not coming as a lamb to lay down his life. He's coming back as a conquering king. He will crush those who oppose him. And that's why we're we're told in places like Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, and I looked, this is John receiving this vision, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow. This is Jesus. Not a bow like a cute bow on your hair, like a bow and an arrow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out, and what is he doing? He's conquering and to conquer. He's come to conquer and obliterate and smash his enemies. 
to pieces. And it's so frightening, brothers and sisters, the wrath of the Father and the Son, that we're told later on in Revelation 6, that the enemies of God are calling out for the mountains and the rocks to crush them and cover them. So that they, that would be better treatment than experiencing the punishment of the Father and the Son. That would be preferable to suffering eternally under the wrath of our triune God. And as horrific as that may sound, brothers and sisters, for us on that great day, it will be salvation. But we will experience the full benefits of what Christ came to do the first time. And man, that's why we look forward to his second coming. So how does the psalm then find voice in our lives? How do we sing this? How do we pray this? Well, first of all, we have to remember that Jesus has won the final victory for us. In his first coming, he's reconciled us to God by being made an object of the Father's wrath. We deserved that, but because the Father loved us, he sent the Son to become that object of wrath so that there's no punishment left for us and we're now given the righteousness of Christ. So that we're reconciled. That's the standing, the legal standing that we have before the Father. And we're adopted so that we can cry out to God. This Jesus has accomplished and given to us in his first coming. But we also look forward to that second coming, don't we? And there's not a day that goes by that we don't have to remind ourselves that we're in this weird in-between time. The now of the kingdom, it's come, it's been inaugurated in Jesus' first coming, and yet it is not yet fully here. But it will be fully here when Christ returns. And so we, weird, we live in this weird tension where we have the first fruits of the new creation, but yet all of creation and we ourselves groan for when Jesus will come back and all will be made right and we will experience the revealing of the sons of God. That's what creation is groaning for. And Jesus, when he returns, will make that happen. And so we need to remind ourselves of that. This is where we are at in the story of salvation history. And so we need to be prepared and armed to suffer in the flesh and in our battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Understanding that our salvation, our blessed hope, the Lord Jesus Christ, is returning soon. And may he come today. So we've seen that in order to nurture our thankfulness thankfulness in our hearts, we need to remember our strength, we need to remember our salvation, and lastly, let's see how we need to remember our Savior. Look at verses 49 and 50 with me. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. So here's the picture. By the way, these are some of David's final words, right? This is one of the psalm, the psalm he wrote before um, he writes his, his last blessing, as it were, in 2 Samuel 23. And what he's telling us is that as he defeated the nations, as they came cringing before him and gave him tribute, he didn't stand before them and say, as many of the Gentile nations' kings would have, Look at all that my hand has done. Behold, I am so great that I must be a God myself, right? Isn't that what some of the rulers, Pharaoh himself did? I'm a God. That's not what David does. 
He stands before those whom he's conquered, and he says, you want to know what the difference between you and me is? It's not because I'm stronger than you. It's not because I'm smarter than you. It's not ultimately even because I'm more intrinsically moral than you. You know why I've conquered? It's because the Lord has graciously done this for me and for his people. It's purely his grace. It's purely his work. And so I stand before you now, not to praise myself, but to give glory and honor to Yahweh. He alone is Lord. You see, by me conquering you, what this has shown is that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God, and your gods are not gods at all. Because if they were gods, they would have delivered you from my hand and from Yahweh's hand, and yet here you are. And so here's David singing praise to God for all that he's done for him, giving the glory to Yahweh, not taking any of it for himself. He's standing before these unbelieving nations and proclaiming that God is his glorious Savior. And so that's what David's doing here as the Lord saved him from his enemies, as he's shown him, verse 50, this steadfast covenantal love to David, and David knows that this is going to go on over to his offspring, to his children and his children's children. And so David is just overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude to God as he faces the final enemy, death itself. So how do we hear this psalm then in the life and ministry of Jesus? We've seen it in David. How about in Christ? Well, here's something interesting. Verse 49 is actually picked up by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his missionary letter to the Romans. So turn with me very briefly for once, right? Don't turn there with me. Don't turn there with me. Now you actually get to turn there with me to Romans chapter 15. And I want you to look at verse 8. It's the second to last chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And he tells them in Romans 15 verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews. Why? Because of the promise that was made to Abraham. That through your offspring, your offspring will be a great nation. And so what Paul is saying is the Lord Jesus came, right, John says, to his own. And yet his own did what? They rejected him. Don't we see this in Jesus' ministry? Who are his most hostile opponents? Who basically ends up getting him crucified from from a human standpoint? It's unbelieving Jews. They reject the Messiah that God has given him. But Jesus comes and he presents himself to his own, to Hebrews, to ethnic Jews, because the promise is kept to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Paul wants to make that abundantly clear here. But they reject it, and so who does it go to? Verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Because what's the other part of the promise to Abraham? It's not just that I'll make you great as a nation, but then through your offspring you will be a blessing to the nation to the Gentiles, right? What does Jesus say? I've got sheep that aren't of this fold. They're the Gentiles. And I'm going to bring them in. And so what Paul is saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who wrote Psalm 18, 
He's saying this psalm is in the mouth of Christ as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now, here's the question. When did Jesus do that? When did Jesus do this? He did this through his apostles, didn't he? He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see the apostles doing until they're going to nations, Gentile nations, and seeing Gentiles flock to, to hear the gospel, believe the gospel. After the, Gentile, uh, the Jews again and again have said, we don't want to hear what you have to say, they almost kill Paul multiple times, driving him out of town. And the Gentiles flock and receive it and are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and saved and united to Jesus as the disciples go as his mouthpiece and proclaim the good news that is for, as Paul says, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's what Jesus is getting at here. That's what David was pointing forward to. These Gentiles that were going to be moved by the Holy Spirit and united to Christ. And we see this all throughout Acts. Acts 13, 42 and 44 and 48. Acts 28, 28. Which goes to show us, by the way, that Jesus doesn't just conquer his enemies by running them through and crushing them, does he? How else does he conquer his enemies? By regenerating them by the Holy Spirit and taking their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh so that they love him who they once hated. And brothers and sisters, that's our testimony, isn't it? Every single I don't know how many of us are in here ethnic Hebrews or Jews. I'm not. I'm a Gentile through and through. And God has graciously saved me as someone came as Jesus' mouthpiece and made the gospel known to me. And so we've heard this psalm in the voice of David and of Christ. What does this mean for us, brothers and sisters? Well, it means for us that we need to rejoice in the fact that we have been reconciled to Christ. When we were dead and lost, we were his enemies. We were sinners. And so this reconciliation then is what drives us to want to make the ends of the earth know about our great Savior. And Jesus has conquered He says, I've overcome the world. And so what brackets the Great Commission? Well, let me read to you Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm ascending to the Father's right hand. I'll be seated there in power. All authority is mine. So therefore, go and be my mouthpiece to sing my praises among the Gentiles, among the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And then he ends it by saying, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am your Savior who goes with you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and I will strengthen you to be able to do all that is necessary laying down your very life, suffering the loss of your children, your health, not being in the best financial situation that you would have been if you would have stayed here and built up your retirement account. And so what we see then is it's thankfulness, gratitude that should drive us to missions and sharing the gospel with the unbelievers around us. That's exactly what Paul's attitude was. 
In Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, I am under obligation or I am indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And this isn't a a beleaguered, sad, somber indebtedness, right? Like you feel towards your credit card company. No, it's a thankful, joyful, exuberant, I'm willing to pay everything, lose everything. It's all considered loss in comparison to him because he saved me and so now I'm indebted to make this gospel known to God's enemies even if they kill me. With my dying breath, I'll make this known to them, that they might be converted even as I was. Because some of the elect, well, all of the elect are at one time God's enemies. And so we are to be driven by thankfulness and gratitude. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we, we pray for them. That's why we, we give to them. It's not because we are overwhelmed with guilt. Guilt won't, won't see us through to the end. Guilt won't give you the strength that you need to make the sacrifices necessary. But thankfulness, gratitude, joy for the Lord who is your strength to do everything that is needed in the Christian life, who has done everything necessary for your salvation in His Son, and will bring about that full and final salvation when he returns again. Thankfulness and gratitude for this Savior is what should drive us to give everything that we have for the mission that Jesus has left us to make disciples of all the nations. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope as we've looked at these truths that your heart is stirred, even as mine has been, to thankfulness. That that would be our song all the days of our lives, that we would be singing the praises of our God who so graciously dealt with us so that we can sing with David, with Christ, and all the saints who have come before us. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are our strength, our rock. Jesus, you are the vine, we are the branches. We can do nothing apart from you. And yet you've given us your spirit, and so we pray that we would live our Christian lives in obedience to your word in that strength, resting in that strength, trusting you for that strength, knowing that you have so graciously saved us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're awaiting for your return. And so we pray we'd be faithful to sing the praises of our Savior as he uses us as his mouthpiece here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. It's only thankfulness and gratitude that will sustain us. And so we pray you'd work that in our hearts all the days of our lives as we remember your covenant faithfulness to us, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.